As I mentioned at the beginning of the service, we're kicking off a brand new sermon series, four weeks, On the Road with Jesus. But today, we are going to take what you might call a scenic route. We're going to take a detour because we're actually going to start with Elijah. So open up your Bibles. We are going to look a lot at 1 Kings 18. I didn't uh, put the verses we're going to look at on the screen. So if you have a Bible in front of you, if you want to use an app on your phone, uh, it's going to be good for you to follow along as we bounce along and find, first of all, the context. Uh, what's the rationale? What's the reason for Elijah having this very dramatic encounter with God in the first place? And as you turn to 1 Kings 18, the first thing that we need to know, we need to understand about the history of Israel during this time is that the glory days of Israel are long gone. The glory days of Israel the, under the kingship of David and then his son Solomon saw the kingdom grow, uh, not only geographically, but militarily. The military was very strong, very mighty. The wealth of the nation of Israel, I saw this stat a while back, it's estimated that the amount of gold that Solomon himself, just, just Solomon, had was the equivalent of around $13 trillion in today's money. In 1 Kings, it says that there was so much gold in the nation of Israel that silver was like nothing. They just threw silver out the window, like, ah, oh, it's some silver, whatever, because they were so wealthy, they had so much gold. So that was then. And at the same time, the national identity of Israel was tied into, was wrapped around their worship of Yahweh, but then not too long after, because we know that sin corrupts and power can corrupt and money can corrupt. Two of Solomon's sons get in a battle, they cause a civil war, and now the kingdom is divided. Uh, Israel in the north, a kingdom called Judah in the south. And from that day forward, from the civil war on, the nation, especially of Israel, was heading on a fast track towards destruction. They began to reject Yahweh. They followed other false gods, and what we see here in 1 Kings 18 is, is almost the end. King Ahab, King Jezebel are two of the worst leaders of Israel's history. They brought with them, or I'm sorry, Jezebel brought with her after their marriage 450 prophets of Baal, a pagan god, a fertility god. Together, Ahab and Jezebel took out all the temples that were dedicated to Yahweh. They either destroyed them or converted them to temples for Baal. They removed the altars that were for sacrificial worship of Yahweh. They replaced them with what's called an Asherah pole. It was a way to worship the pagan god. And slowly but surely, the culture in Israel, the northern kingdom, the people, began to forsake Yahweh, they followed the popular thinking of the day, the cultural elite, the political elite, and pretty soon Israel was unrecognizable. It was a pagan country. And it's into that setting that Elijah is called by God to condemn the pagan worship. So imagine you're Elijah. God says, hey, Elijah, I want you to go talk to King Ahab, a guy who wants to take your life. And while you're at it, uh, as you go, have conversation with the people. Let them know that they have forsaken my covenants, they have rejected me, and that trouble is coming their way. This is what Elijah was called to do, not exactly the cush job that some of us would want, right? But Elijah's faithful, and he does it. And he confronts Ahab, and if you are with me now, chapter 18, verse 20 Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. 
So he brings the 450 prophets. He meets them where Elijah tells him to meet them. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. They're convicted. Because it would seem that when it was convenient, the people would worship Yahweh, like if they needed something and maybe it was in their town, Yahweh was still popular, they would worship Yahweh, but then when they would go outside of that town or they would encounter somebody who worshiped the Baals, they didn't want to be culturally offensive, and so they would go after and worship the Baal. They were not steadfast. They went between the two. This is what Elijah's saying, and the people, by their silence, agree. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left the prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Therefore, let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull, lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, I will call upon the name of the Lord, Yahweh, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And I love the people's response. It says, it is well spoken. <laughs> Modern day translation is, oh, this is going to be fun. <laughs> Let me grab a chair, maybe pop open a beer. I want to kick back and just see what happens in this incredible, basically the ancient equivalent of a shootout of the OK Corral. Who is going to win? And so it says that the prophets of Baal, they take the bull, they chop it up, they set up the altar area, and from 9 a.m. to noon, they were hooping and hollering, and they're saying, oh, Baal, answer us, oh, Baal, answer us. They're singing, they're dancing, they're worshiping, and for three hours, there's no answer. This then emboldens Elijah, who... Elijah is one of my favorite people in all of Scripture. He's so real. He's so raw. Uh, in this case, he's not being very nice, because verse 27, it says, at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey. Or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. He is poking the bear. He does not care. Filters off. And this, of course, just infuriates the prophets of Baal. It enrages them. Now they're getting desperate. And the text tells it they start cutting themselves with sword, with swords. This is an ancient religious practice. It's basically, if you cut yourself, it showed you your dedication to this God. And the more you bled, the more you were open to this God and saying, God, listen to me. Look at how I'm hurting myself for you. But the text says in verse 29 that no one answered and no one paid attention. 9 a.m. to about midday, worshiping Baal, cutting themselves, bleeding out, and there's no response. And then it's Elijah's turn. Verse 30, it says that Elijah said to the people, come near to me, and all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones, he sets up his altar, and then he takes a bunch of water. So there's a drought going on. I don't think I mentioned that. A three-year drought. So water is a commodity, but also the area is very dry. So I think Elijah's thinking here is that people could have thought that it was a trick, that he kind of lit a match behind his back and threw it in there to make sure that doesn't happen. And no one thinks that. He takes a bunch of water. He soaks the altar with this water so much so that the wood is saturated, the bull meat is saturated, and there's about four inches of water in this trench underneath the altar. There was no mistake that this thing was saturated with water. And he calls the people together, verse 36, and he prays, 
O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. And the text doesn't say this, but I would imagine at this point, Elijah says, now everybody step back. Because verse 38 says that then fire of the Lord fell and not only consumed the burnt offering, but the wood and the stones and the dust, and it licked up the water that was in the trench. It was absolute destruction of everything. And the response is immediate. The people fall on their faces. They are scared to death. And all of a sudden, they change their tune. The Lord, Yahweh, he is God. The Lord, Yahweh, he is God. And mass worship breaks out on the mountain. There's hysteria. And Elijah seizes the moment. He has them grab swords, take the 450 prophets of Baal, and has them slaughtered in the valley, which, by the way, is usually not the story we tell at our summer vacation Bible schools of this event. We leave that part off. Now, at this point, if you were writing a Hollywood blockbuster movie, if you're Steven Spielberg, you get Elijah on his white horse and he has his sword up in the air and he gathers all the people and they rush the palace and they kick out Ahab and they kick out Jezebel and the people repent and the nation is restored. Well, that is not what happened. Despite the miracle and the glory of God revealed through the fire, Despite the worship that takes place, there is zero change in Israel. The culture received, the, the, the people received the rain not too long after God takes the drought away. He sends rain. The people get the rain, the people get the fire, but there is zero change of heart. They still follow after the Baals. They don't revolt against Ahab and Jezebel. And now Ahab runs home to his wife. Ahab is really just a puppet king in this situation. Jezebel is a real leader of Israel. And she says to Elijah in chapter 19, verse 2, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. In other words, what you did to my prophets, Elijah, I'm doing to you. And she sends the army. And the text tells us that Elijah is afraid and he arose and he ran for his life. He comes to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. In other words, he thinks he's going to die. There's no more work for you, servant. And he goes by himself a day's journey into the wilderness. He came and he sat down under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he essentially just lays down to die. This is Elijah, one of the most famous prophets in all of Israel's history. This is Elijah who was on the Mount of Transfiguration with Moses and with Jesus. This is the same exact Elijah who Jesus said must come before me. And he said, if you accept it, John the Baptist is the next Elijah. This guy right here is absolutely depressed. He's suicidal. He doesn't want to go on. He thinks that his life work is a failure. And he asked the Lord to take his life. That is the context, the background of what happened right before we have this dramatic encounter in chapter 19 of God showing up and ministering to Elijah. And I want to bring all that up so that we can then look at two things here today, two things 
that Elijah discovers in this process about God. First of all, he learns about the judgment of God. But then second of all, and I would argue more importantly, he learns about how God saves. The judgment of God, but then also how God saves. Let's begin with the judgment. And to understand this, we really have to do a close reading of the text, and it has everything to do, the key to understanding this is how Elijah speaks about himself. So if you go back with me to verse 18, 22, the very first time he speaks to the people, he says this, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. Now, this is actually not true. Either Elijah is lying in this moment, or he is filled with spiritual pride because just a few days earlier, he has a conversation with a prophet named Obadiah who then tells Elijah that there's actually a hundred prophets left in the land. And Elijah either is lying or he can't accept it. He believes spiritually he's filled with pride that he is the only prophet left. And then again, in chapter 19, when he speaks to the Lord after he sits down to die, God gives him some food, God lets him take a nap, he gives him some drink, he restores his spirit, and then God shows up and he says, Elijah, what are you doing here? And listen to his answer. He says, I have been very jealous for the Lord, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I, only am left and they seek my life to take it away. What is Elijah essentially saying here? Is that God, I'm the only righteous one here. You see, I've done all the things. I've said the prayers, I follow your commands, but those people over there, they have disobeyed you. They have torn down your altars. They have sinned against you. I'm righteous, they're sinners, God. And now the two people who are your ordained kings and leaders of the nation. You have let them go free. They've done all this evil. They have created a culture in Israel that is so far from you. And now not only are they going free, but Lord, they're trying to kill me, the righteous one. And essentially what Elijah is saying here is, God, this isn't fair. And what Elijah wants is not God's forgiveness for the people, not God's righteous saving of the people. What he wants is judgment. And I think that Elijah would have been perfectly happy if the fire that came down from heaven would have consumed not just the altar area, but every single person gathered at Mount Carmel so that they could experience the punishment that they deserve to pay for their sin. But Elijah, you see, is spiritually prideful. He thinks that he's innocent. Which then let's jump out of the story just a little bit and talk about our own culture in which we live. I think we all know that we live in a culture that is no longer what you might call a Christian nation, a Christian country. We live in a culture where if you believe what the Bible says about sexual morality, gender, babies, children, life, you're a minority. Because the majority of the culture no longer believes that this has moral authority over your life and your values. And it is so easy for us as Christians, isn't it, to look out into the culture and say, Lord, how long are you going to allow this to go on? Lord, where is your righteous judgment upon the sin and the evil that we see in this land? And as we do that, you see, it's so easy, just like Elijah, for us to point to the sin of others and minimize the sin in our own hearts and our greed and our anger, our lust, our lying, whatever it is, the sin that you struggle with, we can point to others and we can say, God, bring judgment upon them but spare me. 
because I'm following your law, I'm coming to church, I'm reading your word, I'm saying the prayers. You see how easy it is for us to get sucked in this exact same trap? So what we need to answer then today is if that is God's judgment and Elijah learned about that, then uh, how does the Lord save? And Elijah discovered this as well. Go back with me to chapter 18. See, Elijah wanted judgment. And it's interesting to me how when he goes to Mount Horeb, the Mount of God, the Lord says, wait for me there, I'm going to show up. And do you notice the three ways in which he first shows up, or at least the, the presence of God, the judgment of God shows up? It's first a powerful storm that could have destroyed Elijah's life. Then it's an earthquake that could have destroyed Elijah's life. And then it was a fire that could have destroyed Elijah's life. And the text is very clear. The Lord was not in those three forms of judgment. But instead, the Lord shows up in a very gentle a very kind, a very compassionate voice, and he whispers to Elijah, Elijah, why are you here? At this point, I would imagine Elijah has calmed down a little bit. He's come to his senses. He's not having such a pity party, and he's saying, maybe in a softer voice, God, don't you see what's happening? The culture is going to hell in a handbag. You have leaders who are no longer following your will. You have people who are rejecting your covenant, and now they're coming after me. Lord, how long are you going to allow this to happen? Elijah says, or God says to Elijah, listen, first of all, your work is not done. You think your work is done? Your work is not done. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to Haziel, the king of Syria, to the north, and appoint him as king, and he's going to enact my judgment on this world. Now, Haziel was not a believer. He was not a Jewish person. And so what God is saying very clearly to Elijah is that, look, it doesn't matter the faith of the leaders in charge. I can work through anyone, and I will work through anyone because I am sovereign and I am God. So Elijah, take a deep breath. And then he says, you think that you're alone. You think you're the only one that has faith. Elijah, how could you possibly know that? Do you know the hearts of other people? No, of course you don't. I am God, and I alone know their hearts and what they believe. And there are 7,000 who have still not bowed a knee to Baal. You are not alone, Elijah. There are so many believers in this nation. And then he says to Elijah, you are not the guy. You think you're the man. You think you're the guy, but I want you to go and appoint, anoint Elisha to replace you. You're going to raise up a new prophet in Israel. You're going to raise up a new person who's going to follow my will and he's going to do what I ask him to do, and he is going to be the one that does the things that you think you should do by your works. Elijah, don't you see that you're not the center of your story? I am. And from that point forward, from Elijah to Elisha, to a prophet named Isaiah, to a prophet named Jeremiah, to a priest named Ezra, to a prophet named Ezekiel, to a prophet named Daniel, to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, to a prophet named Amos, and Micah, and Zechariah, and Zephaniah, God was at work from generation to generation to generation to get us to the center of the Bible, the center of our story, not a prophet, but a man named Jesus the one who came not to bring judgment upon this land, but to receive it. The one who took every sin and shame upon the cross, he bore it on his body, it was nailed to a tree, he died, he took the judgment, the wrath of God upon himself so that we can, in our moments of weakness, trust that God loves us, 
that what the psalmist says, God is slow to anger but abounding in love so that we can trust when we fall short and we sin. We have a God who will stop at nothing to love us and bring us back into himself. And it's that gospel, it's that grace that will actually save us and change our heart. And it's that gospel that when we look out to people who think differently than us, who don't have the same moral values and beliefs in us, we can actually begin to have compassion for them the same way Jesus has compassion on us. You see, the gospel changes everything. The next three weeks, we're gonna be spending some time on how Jesus goes with us to lead us and guide us, and there's one little thing that Jesus gives us in the gospel reading. Did you notice how at the very end of our reading, 1 Kings 18 or 19, Elijah goes and he finds Elisha and he's plowing with these 12 oxen. Okay, he's working the farm. In our gospel reading, Jesus says, take my yoke upon me, learn from me, for I am, my burdens are light. Well, he's really talking about this farming analogy. He's talking about oxen because in those days, if you had a brand new baby oxen, they are so strong and so powerful, but they are so dumb in the head that they will use all of their energy. They will plow literally to death unless they learn the right rhythm and the right pace of the plowing. And so a farmer, when they get a brand new baby oxen, they attach it with this 75 pound yoke to a bigger, stronger, mature ox. All the weight of the plow, all the weight of the yoke is put on the backs of the mature oxen. And that oxen then teaches the immature one the right pace of work and the right way to make the turns and the way to not overexert yourself. But in that moment, the powerful, I mean the mature ox is taking the entire weight upon his shoulders. And see, this is what Jesus is inviting you into today. When you're anxious, when you're uncertain about the future, and you don't know what's coming next, Jesus says, take my yoke upon you Walk with me. Listen to my still, small voice. You don't need a miracle. You don't need fire. You don't need an earthquake. All you need is the whisper of your Savior Jesus who promises that he is with you and that he loves you now until forever. And it's in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.